0: Well, take your Bibles and open them to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, and let me begin this morning by reading our text for us. Philippians chapter 4, it's one verse, verse 1. Paul says this, Philippians 4, 1, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, In this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. A missionary in the the jungles of New Guinea wrote a letter to his friend. Here's what he wrote. He said this, Man, it is great to be in the thick of the fight, to draw the old devil's heaviest guns, To have him at you with depression and discouragement, slander, disease. He doesn't waste time on a lukewarm bunch. He hits good and hard when a fellow is hitting him. You can always measure the weight of your blow by the one you get back. When you're on your back with fever and at your last ounce of strength, when some of your converts backslide? When you learn that your most promising inquirers are only fooling? When your mail gets held up and some don't bother to answer your letters? Is that the time to put to mourning? No, sir. That's the time to pull out the stops and shout hallelujah. Hallelujah. The old fellow's getting it in the neck and hitting back. Heaven is leaning over the battlements and watching. Will he stick with it? And as they see who is with us, as they see the unlimited reserves, the boundless resources, as they see the impossibility of failure, how disgusted and sad they must be when we run away glory to God we're not going to run away we're going to stand that was a man who was not going to give up because he knew the resources that were available to him he knew of Paul's words in Ephesians 1 that says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He was a man who knew of the spiritual resources that were available to him in the battle for the truth, and he wasn't going to give up. In fact, He's going to stand firm. that's Paul's message to the Philippian believers in our text here this morning. We know the the Apostle is writing this letter to the church at Philippi from prison as he's been locked up 24-7 to a Roman guard. He's there because of his stand for the Gospel. But he wasn't going to back down. He was a man who was going to stand. And here in chapter 4 in verses 1 through 9 there's a sense in which Paul ramps up his letter here. He ramps things up as we've seen in chapter 3 Paul has been telling them that they need to strive for the goal of Christ-likeness. To press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. To strive after Christ-likeness. But here in verses 1-9 through of chapter 4, as Paul now comes to the end of his letter, he's giving the church some final exhortations. And he gives this church nine imperatives here in these nine verses, nine imperatives, nine commands that they are to follow as they live as citizens of heaven during their stay here on earth. Now, as I've said earlier in our study of Philippians, that one of the key themes of the book of Philippians is joy. It's joy. In fact, joy is found 16 times in this letter, and Paul commands the church to rejoice four times. And for many people, they would say that if you were to boil this letter down to one word, it would be the word joy. But as we've continued to study through this amazing book here, I have to confess to you that while joy is a major theme of the letter of Philippians, I would argue that if we were to let to, to boil this letter down to one word, I would argue that that word is not joy, but that word is unity. Unity. All throughout the letter, Paul has been addressing Unity. And he isn't done with that, as we're going to see this morning and even next week as we get into verses 2 and 3. Paul is still addressing the issue of unity in the church. But as we've worked our way through this letter, we have seen unity all throughout it. In fact, the church at Philippi has been unified with Paul in the spread of the gospel, as he says back in chapter 1 and verse 5. He says, in view of your participation in the gospel from the very first day until now. You have been participating with me in the gospel. There's unity with us in the gospel. In chapter 1 and verse 7, Paul says, I have you in my heart and you all are partakers of grace with me. There's this unity that they have with each other. Verse 19, he addresses their prayers for him as he's locked up in prison because they're unified with him. Verse 24, even though he desires to, part, to depart and be with Christ, he knows that to remain in the flesh is more necessary for their sake. He loves them, he cares about them, he's unified. With the Philippian believers. And in verse 27, he wants to hear that the church is conducting themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And he wants to hear that they're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Then in chapter 2, verse 1, he tells them of the fellowship of the spirit that they have. There's fellowship, koinonia, the Spirit. In verse 2, he wants them to make his joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Then in verse 3, he wants them to regard one another as more important than themselves, to be united. Then in verse 14, chapter 2, he wants them to do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? Because the apostle knows what grumbling and disputing does. What does it do? It causes disunity. Disunity. Verse 17, he shares his joy with all of them. There's a sharing aspect of joy because they're unified. In verse 18, he wants them to share their joy with him. He wants them to be unified in joy. In verse 20, he wants to send them Timothy because he doesn't want to send anyone who will have selfish interests and not care about their own welfare because he loves them so much. He's unified with them. In verse 24, he's anticipating that he will be united with them again in person. In verse 25, he sent Epaphroditus back to them so that he could be united with them again. Then in chapter 3, He warns them of false teachers who will come in and cause division in the church and lead people astray. Chapter 3 and verse 14, he speaks about pressing on toward the goal of Christ's likeness. And notice in verse 14 of chapter 3, he says this. He says, let us therefore have this attitude. All of us together, as we're unified in this, we all need together to be having this attitude in us. We need to be unified. Essentially, join me in this attitude so that we're united in this attitude and pursuing Christ-likeness together. Then he encourages them in verse 17 to join. Notice a word there for unity. To join in following my example. Essentially, be joined with me as I follow Christ. Be unified with me. Then in verse 20, he reminds them of the citizenship that they have collectively as believers in Christ. Listen, you're not citizens of this world. You're citizens of heaven. That's our citizenship. Together, collectively, unified. We're citizens of heaven. And all of us are united in Christ as we're awaiting His return where we will all then be transformed to be like Him. And all of this is speaking about unity in the church. And the more and more that I've studied this book, I must confess that I believe that the main theme of Philippians is unity. It's all about unity. In fact, recently I was talking with a pastor friend of mine who preached Philippians a couple years ago. And as we were talking about The book of Philippians, he told me, Ace, I must confess to you that I believe that the theme of Philippians is unity, not joy, but it's unity. Sure, joy is a major theme in there, but it's a unity. And I said, well, we've come to the same conclusion. (laughs) Paul longs for and desires unity in the church. But he also knows that there are many attacks on the church with the goal of dividing the church. He knows that division is one of Satan's greatest attacks. In fact, Charles Spurgeon said, Satan always hates Christian fellowship. It is his policy to keep Christians apart. Anything which can divide saints from one another, he delights in. And Paul knows this. He knows the impact that this has on the church and our witness for the gospel. And so he pleads all throughout this letter for the church to be unified. To be of one mind. To be of one spirit. To be striving together for the gospel. Now, as we think about unity in the church, we have to understand that there are threats to the church which will cause disunity. Satan's greatest tactic is to cause the church to be disunified. And as we think about these threats, there are two main threats to the church which will bring division quickly to a church. Two main threats. Let me give them to you. The first one is this. The first one is pragmatism. Pragmatism. What is pragmatism? Webster's Dictionary defines it as the doctrine that practical consequences are the criteria of knowledge and meaning and value. Or another way that we could say it is this. Truth is determined by its consequences. That is, the results will tell you whether something is good or bad or right or wrong. Simply stated, pragmatism says if it produces results, then it must be good. And there are a lot of churches who have embraced pragmatism, especially in the church growth movement. You see this rampant in the church growth movement. They think that by doing things that the world would embrace, that that will actually reach the lost. For example, you have churches who are playing secular music in their worship services because they think that that will connect the church with the lost and bring people in the doors. Pragmatism. And it actually works, it does bring people in the doors. You have a lot of places that are playing secular music that draw in the world. You have people streaming into these places because they like the secular music. But does that make it right? Does God allow for us to sing secular songs in worship service unto him? No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. But those people in the church growth movement will say that it draws crowds to churches so it must be good. But what happens here is you begin to bring in the standards of the world and mix them with God's standards. Or as many have done, they actually push God's standards out the door and replace them with the world's standards. But the two can't mix. They can't mix. So what happens? The church splits. It's no longer unified around the truth of the gospel, around the truth of God's word. But it begins to embrace the ways of the world. One commentator says, The obvious danger of pragmatism in the world is that we lose our focus on the absolute standard God has given us in his word. When we lose that focus, the church is on the slippery slope to becoming like the world. And then all of a sudden you get to a point where you don't have a church anymore. Because it's just a bunch of people that are all of the world. They're not citizens of heaven. They're citizens of this world. Which means it's no longer a church. It's just a place where people come to gather together. They can call it church, but it's not church. But what did Paul just tell us back up in chapter 3 and verse 20? Notice what he says there. He says, Our citizenship is where? In heaven. It's in heaven. We're not of this world. That's what Paul is saying there. We're not of this world. We don't want to become like the world. Our goal is to become like Christ. And you cannot mix Christ and the world. In fact, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Answer? Nothing. Nothing. But when a church begins to embrace the ways of the world, the church can no longer be unified. Because it's lost its foundation. It's lost its authority. It's lost its standard on which it is to stand. And it can't be unified. Second threat to the church, which is related to pragmatism, second threat to the church is compromise. Compromise. It's related to pragmatism because in order to be pragmatic, you have to compromise on something, right? You've got to compromise. Compromise. What is compromise? One commentary defines it this way. To compromise is to make concessions or accommodations for someone who does not agree with a certain set of standards or rules. Now, there is a good side to compromise and there's a bad side to compromise, right? There's a good side to it and there's a bad side. The good side to compromise is compromising with your spouse or maybe someone close to you. Over certain preferences. Preferences. We do this in our relationships, right? Where we will compromise over preferences. Which way do you like the toilet paper to go? Over the top or underneath? Well, somebody's got to compromise there, right? So we stay unified. You have preferences. That's the good side to compromise in order to keep unity. But the bad side to compromise is when you compromise on principles or truth. That's the bad side to compromise. When you compromise on principles or truth. In fact, Jude wrote about this in Jude verse 3. Jude said this, Beloved, While I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. What is Jude saying there? He's appealing to the saints to stand for the truth and not to compromise. Don't compromise. When people in the church begin to compromise the truth they begin to lose the battle because they've given up the only standard on which to take a stand. You see, Satan wants the church to compromise so that he can get in and begin to divide and conquer. John MacArthur said compromised truth has no hope of rescuing the eternal souls of men and women. Compromised truth has no hope of rescuing the eternal souls of men and women. We must take a stand for the truth and stand united on the truth. And don't compromise. And that's what Paul is telling the Philippian church here in Philippians chapter 4. He wants the church as citizens of heaven to be united But he knows that in order for the church to be united, they must take a stand and they must stand firm. And so in standing firm, we won't embrace pragmatism and we won't compromise. We can't. And when all of us collectively have this attitude in ourselves, we will be united because we will be standing firm together. Now, as we look at this verse here this morning in Philippians 4, we're going to break this down into two simple points. Two simple points here. The first point that we see here is Paul's concern for the church. Paul's concern for the church. Now we might look at this verse, or even the first nine verses of chapter 4, we see nine different commands that Paul is giving to the church. Command after command after command after command. And we might think, man, is this guy some kind of drill sergeant? Uh, Who is this guy? All he's doing is just commanding the church. Here's what you're to do. Here's what you're to do. Here's what you're to do. And he does command. He does do that. But I want you to see Paul's concern and affection for them as he addresses the church here in this verse. Notice he begins there in verse 1 with this word, therefore. Therefore. What Paul is doing here is he's reaching all the way back to verses 17 through 21. All the way back to verse 17. And what he is saying here is this. In light of the admonition for you to follow my example and the example of all mature believers, in light of my warning about those who are enemies of the cross of Christ, in light of your citizenship in heaven and waiting for Christ to return from heaven to completely transform you, in light of all of that, Here's what you are to do. Stand firm. Stand firm. But notice here, before he exhorts them to stand firm, notice he addresses them with the most affectionate and loving language. Notice what he says here. He says, my beloved brethren. My beloved brethren. This is the fifth time in the letter that Paul has addressed them as brethren. That is, brothers and sisters in Christ. But this time he wants them to know, not just of the relationship that they have as fellow believers in Christ, but he wants them to know that they are his beloved. They're his beloved. The Greek word there is agapetos. From agape, which means dearly loved or prized or valued. He wants them to know that they are the objects of his love. They're greatly valued by him. They're near and dear to his heart. Remember, the Apostle Paul is not some, just some great missionary traveler who just traveled around just preaching the gospel You know, kind of the the Billy Graham of his day. That's, That's not who Paul was. He's not just some great church planner, But the Apostle Paul was a pastor. He's a pastor. He's a shepherd. And he has a pastor's heart. And he has great affection for his people. These Philippian believers... Listen, the fact that he gives them a command does not negate the fact that he loves them. You see, oftentimes when we hear commands, we think, oh no, that person doesn't love me. It's not true. It's not true. In fact, we do that with our children, right? We command them. Do this, don't do that. Why? Why? we love them. We love them and we want what's best for them. And the fact that Paul is commanding the church to do this is not negating the fact that he loves them. In fact, what is behind this command in this verse to stand firm is a heart of love for these people. One commentator says, Paul is laying on the love and laying bare his heart as he calls upon them for a united stand in the Lord. But notice, Paul doesn't just have a love for them. Notice what he says right after that. He says, whom I long to see. I long to see you. Paul's locked up in in prison next to a Roman guard and He has a great desire to be out of prison and to be with these believers in Philippi. Why does he have a longing to see them? Because his heart is united to theirs. Because he loves them. You know what that's like if you're gone for some period of time from your spouse or a loved one. You have a longing and a desire to be with them because your heart is united with them. Sarah's going to leave this next weekend. I hope she's longing and desiring to be with me while she's gone. We're united. We love each other. That's what Paul's heart is with the believers in Philippi. He loved them dearly and He wants to be with them so that He could see them face to face. That's the kind of relationship that He desires to have with them. I want to see you face to face. Sure, He could write them letters and they could send Him letters, but there is nothing like being with God's people face to face. Nothing like it. That's why we come together on Sunday mornings, right? To be in fellowship with each other to be with each other face-to-face, to to worship corporately. That's why COVID was such a terrible thing for us is when the church was shut down and not able to meet. They began to shut the church doors. We wanted to be face-to-face with each other. Zoom just doesn't cut it. It doesn't. We long to be with each other. And that was Paul. Paul longed to see them. He wanted to see them face to face. That was his heart for these believers. Not only are they his beloved, but notice what else they are. Notice he says there, my joy and crown. He says to them, You're my joy and crown. They are the apostles' joy. They're the celebration of his life and ministry. You see, even though he was locked up to a Roman guard in prison in Rome, that didn't steal his joy. His circumstances did not control his joy. Why? All he had to do was think about the Philippian believers in Philippi. And what would his heart do? Rejoice. That's all he had to do. As he's locked up next to a Roman guard in prison, not desiring to be there, but desiring to be in Philippi to see the believers face to face, but he couldn't be there. He's in terrible circumstances, but he's not allowing the circumstances of his life to control his joy. All he has to do is think about the Philippian believers and he rejoices. because he loves them and he cares for them now was the church at philippi a perfect church no they weren't they weren't a perfect church obviously they weren't that's why paul has to write commands to them right to do this (laughs) because you're not doing it so do it as we'll even see next week there's some division that's going on in the church He knows that they aren't a perfect church, and yet that didn't stop them from bringing joy to Paul's heart. Notice they're not only his joy, but they're also his crown. They're his crown. What does he mean by this? What does he mean that that you're my crown? Well, the crown that Paul talks about here is, is not a crown of sovereignty like a king would wear. It's not some golden crown. But this crown that he's talking about was a wreath that was placed on the head of the winner in the athletic games in Greece. It's the perishable wreath that the winner would get. They would put the crown on top of their head. That's what Paul even talks about in 1 Corinthians 9 where he talks about the imperishable wreath. He talks about the perishable one and then the imperishable one. That perishable one there is the one that the winner in the athletic games would get. on their head remember what paul said back in chapter 2 and verse 16 notice what he says there look back there in chapter 2 and verse 16 he says this he's urging the church to hold fast the word of life so that in the day of christ i will have reason to glory because i did not run in vain nor toil in vain i'll have reason to glory Because you continued to hold fast the word of Christ. You lived it out all the way to the end. And then I know my ministry was not done in vain. It wasn't done for nothing. But because you held fast the word of life, because you stood firm and finished the race, Paul says, oh, you're my crown. (laughs) In a sense, I win. I win. You're the reason for my glory and joy and source the, my source of pride. Not in, some, not in some sinful sense of pride. But he's proud of their steadfast commitment to Christ. I continue to pour into you and you continue to stay steadfast in Christ. Oh, it brings me so much joy. That's what Paul is saying here. They're the proof that his ministry didn't fail. That Paul didn't go out and proclaim the gospel and preach the truth to all of these churches and write all these letters to these churches for nothing. But they're proof that his ministry was actually a success. And he received that crown. Only the crown that he receives is even better than the perishable one because his is imperishable. And for that, he rejoices because there is joy in his crown. You see, Paul had a great affection for his people. He had a pastor's heart. He loved them as every faithful pastor loves his flock. Church, listen, I love you. I love you. I know that it's hard at times to hear God's Word and hear these commands. What God has to say to us. I want you to know it's not my agenda. I'm just here to give you the Word of God which I know is going to work in your hearts because I believe in the sufficiency of God's Word, that God's Word is going to accomplish that for which which it is sent out. But I give it to you because I love you, because I desire God's best for you in your life. And that's the heart of, of every faithful pastor who stands before his congregation and proclaims the word of God, he does it because he loves God's people. People in whom God has entrusted him with. His job and his duty is to love them and care for them and point them to Christ. Follow my example as I follow Christ. That's what every faithful pastor is doing. And that's what Paul is doing here with the Philippian believers. He knows. He's about to give them nine commands. (laughs) But he wants them to know. Listen, church. I love you. I love you. And so we see Paul's great concern for the Philippian believers in this verse. And not only do we see his concern, but Second, point number two, we see Paul's command to the church. Notice what Paul says again in verse 1. He says this, In this way, stand firm in the Lord. The Command is pretty simple here. Stand firm. Stand firm. And in the Greek here, this is a present tense imperative, meaning this. It is to be an active, ongoing thing in your lives. You are to be actively, ongoing, standing firm. You must continually stand firm in the Lord. Why? Is Satan going to give up? He's not, right? He's not giving up. He's never going to look at the church and go, oh man, they're all unified. Well, better move on to the next church. (laughs) No, in fact, if he sees a church that's unified, you know what he wants to do? Divide it. Divide it. He's going to continue to attack the church and try to bring division into the church. So what does Paul say? Stand firm. Stand firm. In fact, this is not the first time that Paul has told the Philippians to stand firm. Look back at chapter 1 and verse 27. Notice what Paul says there. In chapter 1, in verse 27, he says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul knows the importance of the church to stand firm together on the truth of the gospel. Remember in chapter 3, in verse 18, he warned of the enemies of the cross of Christ. He warned them. They're enemies. They aren't just indifferent to the cross. They don't just ignore the cross. No, they are enemies of the cross. In fact, I read a story about a pastor who was flying one time, and he noticed a man sitting two seats over from him, flipping through some little cards and moving his lips the pastor thought to himself i wonder if this guy's a believer maybe those are his prayer cards and and this guy's a believer so the pastor leans over and to engage in conversation with him and he says looks like you're you're memorizing something there the man told him no i'm praying so the pastor told him oh i i believe in prayer too thinking that this man was a Christian. man told the pastor, well, I have a very specific assignment that I'm on. What's that? The man said this, I'm praying for the downfall of Christian pastors. Enemy of the cross. Church, they're out there. They're enemies. They're not just disinterested in the cross. No, they're enemies of Christ and of the cross. So what do we have to do? Stand firm. We have to stand firm. As one commentator said about this command, it's a call to be firmly committed in conviction or belief. And when we stand firm, it brings unity. Paul knows that standing firm gives sustaining power and creates fellowship in the church. Notice back in our verse, chapter 4 and verse 1, notice Paul doesn't just say stand firm, but he says stand firm how? in the Lord stand firm in the Lord remember we are citizens of heaven not of this world and as Paul just told us we eagerly wait for the Lord Jesus Christ we're his slaves he is our master and we stand united in Christ as his slaves in obedience to his lordship always being ready to do whatever it is that our master tells us to do. We're like an army serving under the same general. With the same patch on our uniform that says heaven. Not America. Not the U.S. of A. Heaven. Heaven. Because that's who we are citizens of. We're citizens of heaven. But how are we to do this? Well, notice what Paul says there. He says, in this way. And we would stop here and we'd go, well, in what way, Paul? In this way. Okay, what's this that you're talking about here, Paul? What do you mean by in this way? Well, looking back to what he just told us, he says, follow my example and the example of other mature believers. Flee worldly enemies of the cross. Live as citizens of heaven who eagerly wait for Christ to return. In this way, that is the way that you are to stand firm. But what's interesting here in in the Greek, this phrase, in this way, also looks ahead to the commands that Paul is going to continue with in verses 2 through 9. In all of this way, in all of these ways, we are to stand firm in the Lord as you're pursuing Christ likeness, as you're following after examples, men and women who are examples to you of what it means to be a follower of Christ, as you're living as citizens of heaven in this world. Stand firm in this way. We don't compromise. We don't live as the world lives. We don't follow after the enemies of the cross. But we stand united. As those who are in the Lord. And we continually stand firm. That's the command. And then notice how Paul ends this verse. He repeats again. My beloved. My beloved, he wants them to know how much he loves them and cares for their soul. Com- his command is, is to be taken serious because he loves them. It's as if Paul says, I love you church, stand firm in the Lord, and remember, I love you. I love you. And all of us would do well to heed Paul's command, right? Right? Remember, this here is not just a command to the Philippian church. This is God's word to us, right? This is the inspired word of God for you and I. What is God calling us to do? To Stand firm in Him. Why? Because He loves us and He knows what's best for us. Is standing firm always going to be easy? No. No, it's not. It'll come with its challenges and its hardships. But when we obey God's word and live according to his commands that he gives us in his word, listen, church, there's great blessing. Great blessing. And I can promise you that if we are a church who's united and standing firm in the Lord, Satan will attack us, but Christ will conquer, right? He is the rock on which we stand. In closing, it was April 18th, 1521. Martin Luther was on trial at the Diet of Worms. And he was asked to recount all of his works and the things that he had said against the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church because of their false teaching. And when he was asked to recount all of the things that he had said, all the things that he had written down in his books, here is what Luther said. He said, I'm conquered by the holy scriptures quoted by me and my conscience is bound in the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for it is neither safe nor honest to act against one's conscience. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God, amen. And about a month later, on May 26, 1521, Charles V issued the Edict of Worms which declared Luther to be a heretic and an outlaw who was worthy of death. A death sentence for doing what? Standing firm. Standing firm. May we learn from this great reformer and be a church who is united and standing firm in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, Thank you. Thank you for the truth of your word that convicts us, that challenges us, that commands us in what we are to do. Lord, we know that it's not always easy, but we know that you command us to do all of these things in your word because you love us and you know what is best for us. We thank you for your great love for us. Thank you that you didn't just leave us on our own to try and figure all this out, but you gave us your written word, your perfect, inerrant written word that we can stand on as we live and strive to be obedient to it. Father, help us to do that. Help us to be united as a church that we would stand firm upon the truth of your word. That we would not budge. That we would not compromise. That we would not become pragmatic. That we would continue to look to your word as the standard, as the authority in our lives and how we are to live. And may we do it all to bring glory and honor and praise to your name and your name alone. It's in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray this. Amen.